in the book of Proverbs, um, we hear this phrase, get wisdom, get understanding, though it cost all that you have. If you will, um, if, if you will esteem wisdom, she will exalt you. If you love wisdom, she will honor you. She'll place a garland of grace upon your head. So I want to take a few moments this morning as we start this series on wisdom and frame where we're going to go. I said last year at this time that I felt we were being moved as a culture, I mean as a church, inside the culture to the margins. And my encouragement at that time was for us to go quietly to our rooms but leave the door open so we could continue to influence. But if if the dominant culture is asking us to go to our rooms, then go to your rooms. Don't stand in the living room and fight about it. Now, some of you uh, took that word and you said, boy, that's great advice and I'm going to try to let that influence me. And others of you were not quite so sure. And so you wrote nice notes and cards of encouragement <laughs> telling me that <clears throat> I should think otherwise. And I have honestly tried to do this over the last year. I've read other things and I've paid attention to what's happening in the culture, but so far I cannot change my mind. I maintain what I said last fall, that we as a church are being put in a different place than we have been in the past, any time in my lifetime, and that rather than fight it and, and really become um, an irritant to the dominant culture, we might go to our place but maintain our integrity, leave the door open, and when we have opportunity, speak into things, but quit trying to take them over all the time. Um, and probably the younger you are, the easier that is to hear, the older, the harder. So I have no interest right now going back and revisiting that argument. We'll take that conversation off on the side if you like. What I want to do this fall is I want to speak into that. I want to encourage people that are in the margins. I haven't told us anything about how we're going to do that and what our strategy might be. And so I want this fall to be a fundamentally different approach, I think, to the way we as a church can influence the culture even though we don't lead it. About a year ago, a friend of mine, Keith Drury, sent me a book called The Road to Character by a writer named David Brooks. David Brooks writes for the New York Times, writes for the Washington uh, Post, I think, and other periodicals as well. The book's called The Road to Character. It's filled with stories that, and they're told in the most beautiful, winsome way, in a way that only David Brooks could tell those stories. And as I read that uh, book, I was just impressed with the way that he lays out the importance of character. But early in the book, he draws a distinction between what he calls resume virtues and eulogy virtues. Resume virtues are the virtues that we try to build up to put on our resume. It has to do with our knowledge, our degrees, our body of experience, and all of those things. Eulogy virtues have to do with what people say about us at our funeral. So resume virtues are focused on creating and producing and achieving and being elevated within an organization. But eulogy virtues are focused on relationships and loyalty. Resume virtues are hard skills. Eulogy virtues are often soft skills, and so resume virtues want generally success and status, but eulogy virtues often try to hide success and to give ourselves to something that is larger than ourselves. 
And the more I read throughout this book, the more convinced I became that he's probably right. And our crisis in character, he says, is that we live at a time in history when we are long on resume virtues and short on eulogy virtues. So people are out pursuing degrees and achievements and uh, all of these things that will elevate their status. But in the process of all of that pursuit, some other softer things have begun to atrophy. And it is in the lack of those things, the softer things, that we find ourselves right now as, as a society writ large. We kind of minimize character. We don't talk about it much. And then we're shocked whenever someone in high offices does something that we say lacks character. Well, of course, because we really haven't talked about character for so long of a time. And I think we're living at a time in, in our history right now where the traditional institutions that have historically strengthened virtue and acted as something like a guideline throughout society. I'm thinking specifically of the government or of the church or of the schools or higher education or of law in the courts. Things that we have traditionally turned to to stabilize us and strengthen us and to reward the act of virtue are themselves beginning to shake. What's unique about this time, I think, in history is that they're all four shaking at the same time. And they're starting to show signs that they lack, some of them, the very integrity that we used to need from them. So our problem, for instance, in government, writes the Atlantic Monthly a couple of months ago, is not that we have a problem with leadership, but that we have a problem with followership. The followers are no longer following the leaders in the government because they don't have as high a trust for government authorities as they used to 20 or 30 years ago. And so it's creating a vacuum that other people and personalities can get into and start to fill. The same thing is true of the church. In his book, Good Faith, Gabe Lyons, David Kinnaman say that the respect that the public has overall for leaders in the church is probably at an all-time low. While most people still continue to claim some church, they less and less turn to the church for advice during critical moments. Of people under the age of 21, 70 to 80% say, if I have a major decision to make, I would not consult a church or a leader of a church I'll find my wisdom elsewhere. Now, it's not that they're trying to criticize the church. It's just that the church to them is irrelevant. In the World Economic Forum, reported in November of 2014, they must have listed 15 or 16 different professions and found that leaders of local churches were dead last in terms of credibility. So Gabe Lyons writes, the leaders of local churches today are a little bit like the greeter in Walmart. <laughs> they can kind of point you in the right direction, but after that, you're on your own. <laughs> So we don't get enough information. We like you, but we just don't think you're a reliable guide at important times. The same thing is true for education, especially higher education. While it tries to reinvent itself 
every three or four years while the demographics and the supply of money is always changing and the curriculum always changing and the leadership always changing. Higher education itself is now suspect, you guys, in a way that it wasn't years ago. For a long time, universities sold degrees and did a magnificent job. But now that so many younger people find themselves with the product and not the job, they're beginning to question the validity of even higher education. 20, 30 years ago, Alan Bloom, himself in education, said, we turn to education for direction, and education has failed us. And then there are the law. There is the courts. Now, wherever you stand on this, you know that certainly not only the courts, but the law itself is more suspect today than it was just a few years ago. Here's my point. Historically, we could look to these institutions and say, in a time of transition, you guys can set the guardrails and guidelines that we can navigate through to get into another place. And those guidelines are themselves now suspect. What this means, I think, is a fundamentally different approach. Not one that uses established institutions as the purveyor of ideas and values, but one that uses the smallest cell in a community, the family the home, one's closest friends, as the one who shapes the future. They are becoming more and more and more important since all of the traditional institutions are weaker than they used to be. So I sat in this room about six months ago and I was praying for this lack of character, this crisis of character, sat right over there in the dark. And I was praying, of course, for integrity. I said, God, I think what the church needs right now in a crisis of character is they need a rise of integrity. People that know what is the right thing to do and they, they can say it and they live it. And because they live it, people will follow them. And partway through that prayer, I was interrupted. The question that came to me in the middle of that prayer was this. Are you sure the problem is a lack of integrity? What else would it be, I thought. After a few minutes of more prayer, the question arose seemingly out of nowhere, maybe it is a lack of wisdom. Maybe what people lack is wisdom more than they lack character or integrity. Maybe our problem, I wrote later that day, is not that we are hypocrites, but that we are fools. For a hypocrite knows what is the right thing to do and only pretends to do it. But a fool does not even know the right thing to do. If our problem is that we were fools, then you would expect people to continue doing the same thing and be shocked, totally shocked, when it does not give them a good life. You would expect them to blame. You would expect them to make no connection between what just happened and decisions that they have made. They're not blowing it on purpose. They just don't know the right 
thing to do. So I began to pray for wisdom. I started doing some digging in Old Testament history and I found in this book of Proverbs statements that are like lamps or lights along the way. Proverbs is like a printed map. It will tell you where you're at. It's not like Google Maps. It doesn't say, in 1,000 feet, turn right. It just says, Look at the map. If you're on this road, that's where you're going. And if you want to go in a different direction, then you got to change the road. Proverbs is this guide of life at about 1,000 feet. It allows you to see where you are and where that is leading. I discovered as I read a little bit behind the book of Proverbs that it is just a collection of sayings. This is no surprise. If you've read it, it's a collection of disoriented sayings. They're all over the map. It's like a junk drawer. Somebody had a great saying and went, wow, that's true. Write that down. So they did, and they shoved it in the drawer. And over the years, I mean hundreds of years, the drawer got fuller and fuller and fuller until finally somebody, a group of people sat down and said, wait a second, this is chaotic. We got to organize this. And I know you're thinking, dude, I read Proverbs. It is is disorganized. It was worse at one time until people sat down and brought some structure to it. So what I discovered was this. I know this history might bore you, but you'll see the point in a second. It started like a, thousands of years ago, literally, in what some call the, the Stone or the Bronze Age, somewhere between 1200, 1500 BC. People had sayings. They collected those sayings. They thought, wow, that's really true. Teach that to the kids. Shoved it in a drawer, forgot about it. And then under King Solomon, and those dates are on the board, 970 to 931, a lot of the other Proverbs were written. Now, Solomon didn't write all of the Proverbs. Even Proverbs says this. Solomon wrote a lot of them, but not all of them. So as Solomon wrote these Proverbs, they added it to the junk door and went, wow, this dude is really good. So they added his sayings. And then, according to the book of Proverbs, the scribes of Hezekiah, which was about another 200 years later, had some more sayings of their own that they added to the sayings and they threw them in the junk drawer. And then from what I read, you'll like this, right around the early 600s, a group of people sat down and said, we need to organize these sayings so there's some structure. One of the historians wrote, so to the best of our knowledge, the book of Proverbs was finished like we know it at around the year 600 B.C. And when I read it, it's like a light went off in my mind, and I thought, man, in 597 B.C., they went into exile. It's almost as if God, in His infinite wisdom, collected these sayings, and He put them in an organized fashion because He knew that when Israel went into exile, 
everything would change. The temple would be destroyed. There goes your church. The priest would be idle. There goes your clergy. The prophet would be kicked to the margins. The government would be overrun. All that was left was the family. And a lot of the men were gone. Many of them killed in exile. No wonder wisdom would be compared to a woman. In many cases, the only one left in the home with something like a curriculum to say the only way to navigate through this time in history is to begin to build steady, faithful homes by using wisdom that has been collected over the centuries. So it's up to you. That's up to me. And if you don't know what to teach, this is where Proverbs comes in. You understand, this shift right now from integrity to wisdom is a fundamental change. Integrity is concerned about what is right and wrong, but wisdom is concerned about what works. And if I'm reading our culture right, they're not that interested in your arguments for what's right and wrong. Now, I know y'all are, and I know you're all sure you're right, and you probably are. I'm just saying, they don't care. What they want to know is, who has a better life? So people in our society today are not comparing worldviews. I know this shocks some of you that are steeped in higher education. They are not comparing theologies and they're not even comparing moral arguments. They're comparing marriages. They're comparing families. They're comparing people under stress. They're comparing lives that work with lives that don't. And the one whose lives function well, are whole and happy and peaceful, and they lead to good places, will have a following. But not because their arguments are right, but because people value their body, of, they value their life. Are you still with me? It's quiet. So what is wisdom? Wisdom is not an answer. It isn't the right thing to do. Um, wisdom is a course. It's more like a journey, which is why this passage in Proverbs chapter 4, uh, 18 and 19, the path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn, shining ever brighter until the full light of day. But the way of the wicked is like deepening darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. It's intriguing because it says there are two paths, not one. There's a path of the righteous and a path of the wicked. And what it says is the further you go down each path, the more clear it becomes 
the path that you're on and the people that go down the wrong path are stumbling over things that they can't see coming and when they stumble over it, they don't even know why they stumble. This is a problem of wisdom. So this last July, I'm reading uh, through the background of Proverbs, trying to figure out this convoluted book. And it's the 4th of July, and I'm in Colorado with some friends, and I'm excited this morning, not because of Proverbs, but because I know later that day we're going to go fly fishing. Only this time, you get it, don't you? Proverbs, fly fishing, perfect connection. And I knew that this day would be different because we would be taking a float. We'd pay a guide to float us down the Eagle River in Colorado, and he'll do all the work, and we do all the casting. And I thought, this is going to be an amazing time. But as I was reading on the history of Proverbs, I stumbled across a little bit of information that said the word for wisdom or guidance Tabula in Hebrew is literally steering or navigating. And when I read that phrase, a bell went off in my mind that said, pay attention. So we got down to the river, got into the boat, pushed off, and you guys, the current grabbed us faster than I thought. And before I even knew it, we were going, moving, until the guide could move us into a little eddy where things were calmer. And there he started to say, now here's the rules. Telling us how to cast, you know, when you cast, always cast into your future, never behind you. And I thought, that, that's it. That's the line from God. Write that down. But I have nothing to write it down with. Cast into your future, never into your past. I'm done. Now it's just fish. But I couldn't get rid of that voice that said, Pay attention, pay attention to the river and to the guide. So as we were navigating down the river, I would hear the guide start to say things like, wait a minute, you guys, sit down. I've got to get over into that current. Somehow he knew where the current was and where it was going, and he knew how to get us into that current because he knew if he could get us in the current, it would take us where we wanted to to be. And then he would say, now, watch it, you guys, I'm in the wrong, I'm in the wrong, I've got to get all the way over right now. And he was just working. The dude's like 60. I mean, he is old. Sorry. <laughs> and he's working these big, oh, I'm just thinking, man, I'm glad it's him and not me, man. How's it going back there? You know. Six and a half hours later, in maybe 900 fish we must have caught. Now, I might be exaggerating a little. And they were massive. <laughs> you got to believe me. I came back to the house and I sat down to finish the day and I thought, I think I understand how to read Proverbs. It's like these verses just said. There are two ways, not one. And both of these ways is a current. Once you get in the current, it starts to gain velocity. So the thing is to choose the current wisely because once you choose the current, the current will choose you. And once the current chooses you, 
It will take you in one of two, listen, ever-widening directions. But so you get it, wisdom is not the sudden decision that you need in the spur of the moment. Wisdom is more concerned with the structures and the habits and the people that we put around us that affect the current that we're in. Because if we choose the right current, then doing the right thing will get easier and easier and easier the further we go. But if we're in the wrong current, then doing the wrong thing becomes more and more likely and it takes a sudden jerk in life to try to get us over. So choose the current because after that, the current chooses you. And then I noted that the time to choose where you want to be is a few hundred yards before you have to be there. You can't wait until you find the perfect spot and say, that's what I want for my life, and then suddenly jump into it. You have to back up in the river and say, in order to get to that spot in a few hundred days or months, what do I have to do today that will lead inevitably towards that spot? So it isn't only about consequences. It's about the choices that we make before those consequences happen. There are choices and then there are consequences. And when we choose things, the consequences decide themselves. And so the fool in Proverbs is not the person who's uneducated. It's the person who cannot see the consequences. It's someone who is trapped in the moment trying to do what they think is right. But because they're unable to see where that decision will lead them, that they end up making the wrong decision. Note to self, whatever decisions I have to make today, one of the factors is, where will that decision lead me as I play it out over time? Because life, like a river, picks up velocity the older we get. And the time to make these decisions is not in your midlife, though you still can, but it's a lot harder. Are you still with me? Now, I know this is hard for some of you. But understand, Proverbs is not your therapist. It's not. It, it's, I mean, it's not that interested in why we do what we do. It just says, dude, I'm just saying, if you do this, it goes there, and if you do this, it goes there. I love you, now you choose. And if we need instruction on how to do that, that's where people come in. They can help us get in that right place. But Proverbs itself just says, here's the map. Where do you want to go? So a guy comes to see me a few years ago because a person in our church sent him. And he says, um, before you do what you want to do, go see the pastor. He doesn't come to our church. In my knowledge, doesn't live in town. I said, why are you seeing me? He said, I was sent. I said, why were you sent? He said, because I'm getting ready to run off with a gal who is living in Tennessee. I said, so why are you seeing me about this? He said, well, because I'm married and the person I work with said that you might want to speak into that. I said, well, yeah, I might. 
tell me about your wife. He said, my ex-wife. I said, no, your wife. Tell me about your wife. Um, what is she like? And he described this litany of flaws that was wrong with her. And I said, wow, my goodness, how did you marry her? Well, he said, I loved her. I said, well, either she changed or you lack judgment. He said it was a little of both. She's changed some, but I think I just made the wrong decision. I said, how sure were you when you married her? He said, I was darn sure. I said, well, you seem pretty sure now. How do you know that you're right now when you thought you were right some years ago and you were dead wrong? So how do you know you're right now? He said, I just want to be happy. I said, happiness, sir, is a consequence. It's not just a choice. Happiness is what happens to you when you do other things first. It's not something you say you want to be and then you just jump into it. He said, what are you saying? I thought, you don't know? This is why I don't counsel, by the way. (laughs) It never goes well. Like, I ask really good questions until I think I know what the answer is, and then I just start preaching. I can't stop. And they always look at me like, don't you have somebody else back there in the office who will be a little more discreet and diplomatic about it? I'm like, sure, but it'll take longer. They'll tell you the same thing, I think. I said, sir, you, you are a mortal, not a god. If you do what you want to do, you won't like what you're going to get. But if you want to like what you're going to get, then you're going to have to do what you don't want to do. You can't do what you want to do and get what you want to get because they are not lining up. You're in the wrong lane, man. You got to move out of this lane. I wasn't yelling, relax. Said, you're in the wrong lane, man. It is not taking you where you want to go. He said, Well, what exactly do I have to do? I said, You keep thinking that the right thing to do, the only thing you have to do to be happy, is to marry the right girl. Happiness is not marrying the right girl, it's being in the right relationship. So, in addition to getting the decision right, you might consider learning other things like how to live with people and how to disagree and how to argue and how to have a fight and how to get over it and how to treat people and how to handle conflict. He said, that's a lot of work. I said, it is the only way to be happy. He said, thank you very much. I said, what are you going to do? He said, leave her. I said, you are free to do that. But if you do that, you will not recognize yourself in three years. Because what will happen is, you'll bring that same deficiency into the next relationship, and when it goes south, you'll come back to see me and say, why is God so mad? God is not mad at you. He's not. This is life, baby. This ain't God picking on you. There are acts and there are consequences. And when you choose an act, you get a consequence. 
And if you want a different consequence, then you have to choose a different act. So you are free to do anything you want to do. But remember, we had this conversation. Thank you, he said. And he left. This is the river. The time to change your destiny is early on, not later. Note to self, as the choices we make begin to pick up speed, they lead in two different directions and they both each have two different sceneries. <laughs> two entirely different rivers, what's called a distributary. The river splits. And if you want to get in that one, then you have to back up a few hundred yards and get yourself in the position to be in that one so that when the time comes, you still can make that decision. I, it's what Proverbs is. This is what Proverbs is. I'll explain this more next week. I think there's actually stages and you can't follow all the Proverbs. You're not even supposed to. Just follow the ones you can at whatever point they are. But this is what Proverbs is. It's somebody who has seen the river coming back to tell you where it goes. It won't try to convince you. You can argue if you want. But Proverbs will just say, this is the way life works. Whether you're rich or poor, male or female, Christian or Muslim, black or white, say whatever you want to say. I'm just telling you, if you want to go in that direction, you have to get in this current. I was in two rivers this summer, not one. One was the eagle. Did I tell you how big those fish were? They were amazing. And the eagle ends in this peaceful little eddy. You know, you pull off to the side, the water's calm, please breeze, and you pull out. The other one I was in was the River Niagara, which ends very differently. <laughs> Of course, by the time you, uh, by the time you recognize where that baby is going, there is not enough horsepower to pull you in another direction. So make choices, make right choices, good choices while you can. Here's what I want. If you are young, I wish you would leave here this morning inside saying to yourself, I want to be wise. I mean, I'm getting all my education and all the learning. I mean, and that stuff's vitally important, but it will not make you wise. I promise you, you'll have to do more with it than just get it. So if you would just leave saying internally, you know what, education, I'll get it. Don't worry about that. But I want to learn how to use the education I'm getting in order to be wise because as Neil Postman said, most of the mistakes that I've made in life did not come from a lack of information. 
Most of the time, I knew enough to make a good decision. It came from a lack of wisdom. So pray for wisdom. If you're older, then what I wish you would do for us as a church is speak wisdom into us. We need to hear from people that have been up the river. I didn't say down the river. <laughs> people that have been up the river through enough of the years that you can come back and speak wisdom to us. So if you would just speak to me and speak to other people in our church in just broad strokes, but remember, stay in the lane of wisdom. Sometimes as you get older, you tend to drift into convictions and opinions, and that, that's great. We want to hear those too, kind of. Um, but what we really want to hear is wisdom, and, and you'd be surprised how open we are to learning from you, even if we don't show it right away. Uh, if you're in one of the states where you would say, but, but Steve, you know what? I feel like I'm that person who's, that came into your office. I've made some decisions, and they're starting to harden and to fate, and I don't know what to do. There are still things you can't, it is never too late to do the right thing, never too late to do the right, never too late to do the right thing because all actions have consequences no matter when you start them. So what I will tell you today is there are things that you can do, but the first thing is to stay within arm's reach of people who are in a different river. Your tendency will be to say those people got lucky and everybody cared about them and I didn't have any of those advantages and, and your tendency will be to distance from them. No, you need to be close to people who have pursued different, different courses in life. I'll tell you more next week how to handle that, but right now just keep them in arm's reach. And if you're in that group of people, that remnant, I think, that is living the right way and, and you're saying, I'm in the right current and, as, and you're right, it's getting faster and faster, but this city and these people, they don't listen and they take advantage and they don't, it doesn't change anything. If you find yourself in that, listen, I understand that and I know on a bad day I can, I can say all that plus 10, but take heart. More people are watching than you know. They really are. You are influencing people you have never met in ways that you will not know until years later. I was reading this book by Kinnaman and Lyons also this summer, and I got to the end of this chapter, you guys. I thought you'd like it. And they talked about a friend that they met named Ann Snyder, and she about seven or eight years ago, and they said, when we met Anne, she was just kind of enthusiastic, bubbly person, really, really bright. She had just graduated from a university somewhere in the Midwest. And you're thinking, was it mine? <laughs> and through the years, they had correspondence with her. And one time she wrote and she said, guess what? I just got the dream job. I just got hired by David Brooks, the New York Times writer. I'm a research assistant. And they said, well, what does that mean? She said, well, right now it means I'm a sounding board, someone to read his early drafts and track down stats and offer story ideas. It's both meaningful and fun. I can't believe I'm getting to do this so soon out of school. So in the Denver airport, one of the writers pick up a book, The Road to Character, and start reading it. And he got partway through it, and he thought, wow, these arguments are really arguments. They're powerful about a different way to live. And he thought to himself, I wonder if in the acknowledgments he'd include Ann Snyder. So he leafed back to the front, looked in the page, and it wasn't there. 
Then he flipped the page back one more. And there at the beginning in the acknowledgments, David Brooks writes, Ann Snyder was there when this book was born and walked with me through the first three years of its writing. This was first conceived to be a book about cognition and decision-making. Under Anne's influence, it became a book about morality and the inner life. She led dozens of discussions. She assigned me reading from her own bank of knowledge. She challenged the superficiality of my own thinking in memo after memo that transformed the entire project. While I was never able to match the lyricism of her prose or the sensitivity of her observations, I have certainly stolen many of her ideas and admired the gracious and morally rigorous way she lives her life. If there are any important points in this book, they probably come from Ann Snyder. And I thought, David Brooks I know. I never heard of Ann. You'd be surprised the influence you can make if in God's wisdom he puts you in the right place. Sometimes it's under the person you want to be with the right wisdom to steer that person while they have a much more popular and higher profile. Do not be discouraged, church. You'd be surprised what God can do with you in time.